When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to build better clients, a better practice, and a better life. This is Tom Wheelwright, founder and CEO of the Wealth Ability Network. So the Inflation Reduction Act, or as I like to call it, the Accountants Full Employment Act, is, uh, is at this point... It's done. And uh, the biggest piece of this for the accounting profession is $80 billion, new $80 billion for the IRS, not, not $80 billion total, new $80 billion for the IRS. So how is this going to impact your practice? How is this going to impact your clients? How is this going to impact how you do tax returns? All of these things we're going to talk about today. A very special guest. Uh, he's been with us before, Garrett Watson. Um, Garrett is with the Tax Foundation, uh, my favorite place to go for data when it comes to taxes. So, Garrett, welcome to the Wealth Ability Show for CPAs. Thanks for having me. And so, if you would give us a, uh, just for those few people who don't know you, a little of your background and uh, how long you've been with the Tax Foundation, et cetera. Right. Yeah, I'm a senior policy analyst here at the Tax Foundation, uh, focusing on federal tax policy. I've been with Foundation for about three and a half years now, and uh, my work focuses uh, on a lot of uh, business and individual tax issues on the federal side of things. Uh, I also help uh, manage our economic modeling uh, because we produce a lot of estimates of what tax policy proposals might do uh, to the everyday person, to federal revenue, uh, and what it what it all means. And so. Uh, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Build Back Better Act that preceded it has kept us very busy, as we've talked about prior uh, prior on this show. And uh, this is sort of the culmination of it. And uh, as you just said, there's going to be a big implication for the IRS and for uh, practitioners as we try to navigate this. Yeah. So let's. Uh, uh, what I want to focus on today is, of course, the $80 billion to the IRS. So can you put that in perspective? What's the IRS's budget prior to this? And what will this do from a standpoint of the size of the IRS, the power of the IRS, the, 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 what the IRS will be able to do? Right. So over the next 10 years, uh, the IRS is expected to be appropriated about somewhere around between 120 and $130 billion over the next 10 years. That is an uptick slightly from where it was uh, a couple of years ago. And that's because uh, Congress did approve an increase in funding in the last uh, big budget process that happened, uh, but this really takes it to the the next level. It represents uh, with that eighty billion dollars um, about somewhere around eighty to a ninety percent increase in its budget over the next ten years. Uh, ten years from now, uh, on a year by year basis, because it does phase in, it will actually be a fifty percent increase in their budget in the year twenty thirty two. Ten years from today, according mm -hmm. to um, the uh, official scorekeeper projections, so it's a major uptick. So so. Um... So the way it's broken down, as I read the bill, is uh, about $3 billion for customer service, which I always joke that that means we're going to go from, they're going to go from answering 10% of their calls to 20% of their calls. Um, then there's another $4.5 billion for technology. 
And I think there's about $28 billion for operations and $45 billion specifically for enforcement. Right. So when, when you look at just the enforcement piece, how big of an increase is that $45 billion to their current enforcement budget? Yeah, it, it will be a significant uptick in what they're doing uh, on the enforcement side of things, um, uh, especially because uh, and we're talking both in terms of the number of personnel who are going to be dedicated to this, as well as the other resources needed to conduct audits and investigate uh, taxpayers who they think need to be investigated. Uh, of course, we've heard a lot about the oft-repeated you know, 87,000 agent number, which came from a, a government uh, projection of the number of employees. Uh, some of them, of course, will not be auditors in that uh, in that uh, category. But as you broke down, even if you just prorated that over the sort of relative allocation of funding, a lot of them will be uh, auditors. Uh, and so that will be a significant uptick in um, the capabilities of the IRS to engage in this uh, enforcement auditing. And of course, it's a very polarizing uh, topic of, of debate uh, about how we think about this, how it's going to impact the everyday taxpayer, especially uh, because the focus has been for advocates of this. It's only going to be at the very top. The everyday person doesn't have to worry. Um, well, so and, let, 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 we'll, we'll get into that. But, yeah. but, but first, let's look at this allocation. And I I'd really like what's the ta tax foundation's view on how this $80 billion is being allocated because it's very specific. Okay. Yeah. And I've always said, well, you know, if you were to take a typical business and you said, we have massive customer service problems. The first thing we do before we ever got new customers would solve our customer service problems, which is does not appear to be what they're doing because to me, $3 billion over 10 years is not very much money to go to a department that is woefully lacking in customer service. If, if uh, Have you guys looked at how much if, if if you were to allocate this $80 billion, there's no question the IRS is underfunded. In, in my mind, there's yeah. no question they're underfunded. If you were to allocate this $80 billion, how would you do it? Yeah, I think I agree with your, with your instinct that, and that's something that we, we've been emphasizing, which is that uh, customer service and the uh, taxpayer's ability to even just get a hold of someone to say nothing of actually delving into their tax situation should be really coming first. That should be uh, the predominant portion of this funding. Uh, it really, the, the two major things would be that and then IT modernization, right. uh, because you see a lot of these stories, right, about, you know, uh, the IRS having to resort to use, to using, um, you know, uh, really out, outdated techniques just, just to keep up with their current demand. Uh, both of those things would help, I think, shore up the agency's current capabilities, while also ensuring that there's trust with the agency, because I think that's the big problem, right? And, and the response to this and the concerns about the auditing, I think, is a symptom of that that people do not trust the IRS to be on their side, do not trust that they're going to be, um, you know, uh, the agency that they can trust moving forward uh, with enforcement. And that that could be helped if they could actually get a hold of someone on the customer service side uh, and, and feel like there's actually some um, some goodwill there. If they're only hearing from an agency from an auditor who's looking to get them and make them pay more, um, that's that's not uh, great uh, for the perceptions of the everyday American because that's the only time they ever interact with the IRS, right? Other than going through and filing a return. Uh, if it's only only the bad side where they hear from them, that's not great. And so, um, because we don't hear from them when, when they owe us money, right? Uh, we only hear from them when we owe, owe them money. Well, let, let's talk about that. So, so we've seen refunds take up to 18 months to two years yeah. um, on an amended return. Uh, do you think that's going to change under this bill? So unfortunately, I, I think uh, the, in terms of relative to what it would be before this bill, I, I don't think it's going to move the needle much just because, as you say, that the resources for the actual operations of the IRS in terms of catching up 
with these uh, returns, that's not where they're putting most of these resources. And so some of that operational support more broadly might go toward that. Um, and, and I think part of it, the other part of this, of course, is it's gonna be really important to have accountability and transparency about how these resources are used moving forward. Uh, this is something, there's some of that, of course, in the existing IRS process. And we have folks like the National Taxpayer Advocate who try to shed light on this stuff. But, there, but the big thing we learned on that returns process and the backlog is there's been a lot of confusion, even about the basics of how much uh, the back, how big is the backlog? How quickly is it being resolved? We've heard conflicting information from the IRS uh, on this over the past year and a half. Uh, and it's not clear to, clear to me from this uh, increase in funding alone that that's going to be improved. And that's going to be the other issue, right, is if there's not clarity on how these resources are used, uh, that, that makes folks even more skeptical about um, its efficacy. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, the top priority needs to be in addition to the customer service side improvement, getting us back to baseline and getting those returns right. cleared will also be helpful. Why are we putting money toward enforcement when people haven't even gotten clarity about their own, um, their own, the status of their own returns? And I should know, of course, this is all interconnected, right? It's all holistic. If people don't have information about the status of their returns, it's hard for them to go back and amend them if there is an error, right? Uh, it makes it harder for, for CPAs and practitioners uh, who are often, of course, in the middle trying to uh, coordinate on this uh, to help their clients. So if, if we did have that prioritized first, that would help feed into the enforcement side um, naturally as well. So it's not even an either or thing. It's just a matter of order of operations and what makes the most sense uh, when we think about that. So, so uh, yesterday um, I was in a, in a meeting with uh, the members of our network who uh, work with our clients. And um, I asked them how many had actually handled an audit mm. in the last five years. And like three hands went up. I mean, it was mm. very few. So we've had very few IRS audits. We know that. We do know that they are understaffed for IRS audits. Um, if, you know, there've been so few IRS audits, how many more or percentage of IRS audits, what do you see from a percentage standpoint, how many IRS audits are there going to be compared to what there've been? I mean, is it going to be double the IRS audits? Is, is it going to be, you know, 50% increase? Is it going to be a hundred percent increase, 200%? What is it? Yeah, I think in terms of absolute numbers, that, that that that's tricky to say because I think one of the major um, sort of uh, pushes with this has been focusing on, and this is for advocates and as well as some of the language we've heard from the IRS and the Treasury Department, when it comes to high earners, particularly in, uh, or, or owners of a pass-through interest, right, who have a pass-through business, who may have complicated uh, tax arrangements, um, often for, you know, for real economic purposes, right? Um, and that, of course, makes it really hard often for the IRS agents who, um, many of whom don't have the background or training relative to their counterparties to uh, understand, uh, to even understand uh, it often. And so they're often, the, the word that's been used by Chuck Reddick, uh, the IRS commissioner, is that they're outgunned, right? And so a big part of this process in terms of the number of aud auditors and uh, the focus there is getting them back up to speed. That takes a lot of time. And that's why you see, for example, um, not just on the, the phase into the funding, but the additional revenue that um, the Congressional Budget Office is expecting is that it'll take a long time because you need to get those people in the door and up to speed. That doesn't happen overnight. Um, so how long is that going to take? I mean, uh, you know, are we talking about, because again, 87,000 people yeah. uh, with that budget is actually not a lot. That's not very high salaries, right? Yeah. So you're going, wait a minute, that's about $55,000 a person if I calculate that right. And, uh, and you're not going to hire people with four-year degrees for $55,000. So how are they really going to, do you think, um, first of all, they're really going to be able to get people up to speed and when will they get them up to speed? 
So I, I think it's, you can think of it sort of in two parts, right? You do have, I think, a fairly large contingent of folks who are going to be hired on um, as part of the broader sort of bo uh, bolstering of auditing. And of course, a lot of that even happens with lower income folks. And that's the worry is that they might be swept up in this for improper payments as it relates to EITC or CTC, for example. That may take a uh, less time. You know, it might take, it still might take some time, right? A year or two to get those people, especially in a tight labor market. That's been part of the problem with the IRS, right? Is being competitive in the private sector, trying to draw people in, in a job that can often be tedious and challenging is um, is itself a, uh, takes time. Uh, but that that at least is, is more straightforward than the second part of it, which is uh, attracting talent, retaining talent and training talent related to these very complicated passer arrangements for higher earners. Um, because the, the, the way it's been characterized is that there's just a big knowledge gap there. Um, that the, the, right. the, the folks who are conducting these audits just don't even have the, the background or experience to actually get into it, um, especially when you get to you know, the tax court side, right? When you're actually trying to litigate this stuff, it's very complicated very quickly. And that's the other issue. Even if we assume we snap our fingers that we have these folks in, you know, in the door of the IRS, you know, the tax court process takes months, years often, especially yeah, with these yeah, complicated yeah, cases. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but okay, so let's kind of go to that because they, uh, Commissioner Reddick has really emphasized the pass-through entities. Um, and then at the same time, Janet Yellen, um, and uh, the bill itself says, if you're under 400,000, you're not yeah. going to get increase in audit. But to me, that's completely illogical because how in the world do you know what the owner of that partnership is, what, what's their taxable income if you're auditing the partnership? Because most small business owners are in some type of a partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, they're either in a partnership or an S corporation, but a lot of them are in a partnership that feeds into an S corporation. And that by itself could be considered a complex structure. It's certainly subject to the, you know, the, the, um, uh, audit, the new audit rules, the new audit regime for pass-through entities. So how, when they say $400,000, I think they mean $400,000 for a wage earner, but what mm -hmm. do you think they mean? Yeah, I, I think I think part half the problem here is that we're applying sort of conceptually a, a very much a political pledge in a political context to a very non-political right. problem, right? And so a lot of this has not been really thought about. A, a really simple example is with four hundred thousand. This applies to IRS enforcement. It applies to other things. Is that adjusted for filing status? There's still no clear clarity on that. If, that, if there's any, if there should be any adjustment there. Sounds like there isn't, but. We don't have answers on that. That's a really simple question we don't have answers for. Then you have these other, even more, to say nothing of the more complicated questions of, yeah, are you looking at, is that AGI? Is that taxable income? Is that net of uh, of, of, of losses uh, carried forward from the past? Is it not? Um, of course, the, the challenge here is if we took it literally and we thought, yeah, you're guaranteed not to have any increased risk of audit at 400,000, however it's measured, there's going to be a big incentive just to keep you under that 400,000. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've, been, I've, I've told our members, I said, there's our target. I mean that exactly. is that is the target. Let's 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 do the tax planning so that we're under four hundred thousand. Right. But you're not going to know that. There's no way they're going to know when they audit a partnership because right. you know, typically they won't even know the people who audit yep. the partnerships are not the same people who audit the individuals. Yeah. Right. This is not the same group uh, at the IRS, and so you know they barely talk to each other um, at the IRS on this stuff. So it seems to me like you know it's pretty easy to think well. Think about what does it take to be an accredited investor? $200,000, right? So I can be making $200,000 and I can be in a in a, um, a sophisticated limited partnership mm -hmm. easily, 
you know, that that's out there that's that's for a multifamily housing project or whatever. And so I'm making 200,000, but now they're auditing the partnership. So clearly that's going to impact me. So uh, so I, I'm also curious in the same regard, the Joint Committee on Taxation has given numbers that are wildly different than what are being given by the politicians. And I'm going to include Commissioner Reddick in the politician side because he seems to be in that 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 side of things, um, because they're saying last I read somewhere in the neighborhood of seventy eight to eighty percent are going to be for people two hundred thousand dollars or less. So how mm. does that you know how do those numbers how do you even make sense of any of those numbers? What's the, what's the truth here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in addition to sort of the yeah the political and uh, conceptual issues with the four hundred k pledge, uh, you also yeah just have the simple fact that by increasing IRS enforcement and auditing capacity. That is all this money, as we know, in you know, business is fungible. And so existing resources are going to be made, even if you, you assume that the new resources are purely dedicated to those over 400K, the old resources are going to be freed up in a lot of ways to that will impact audit rates at the bottom uh, below 400,000. And of course, being able to determine a counterfactual of what the rate would have been had this new uh, money come in is itself uh, conceptually pretty hard to understand. Uh, and I think that's what the JCT was trying to trying to determine as well, which is partly what is that uh, you know the us econ locks would say the the second order effects right or the 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 uh, additional effects of having this uh, additional enforcement money even if all of that money itself was earmarked at four hundred k or above that that's interesting so that's an interesting thought I, I be honest I hadn't thought about it that way if if what you do with the new money is go after over four hundred thousand but then you don't use any of the old money. For over four hundred thousand, then that means there's a whole lot more money going to under four hundred thousand. That yeah. now that makes sense. All right, that makes sense. So let me, let me ask you this question. So, all right, so we're already under understaffed in the CPA industry. We have few people coming into the industry. I know of people who are already talking about retiring because of this bill, hmm. because they say I don't want to go back through this again. Um, but then most people aren't even afraid of an audit because they've never been through an audit. So they don't understand what that means to mm -hmm. them. So how do CPAs, how do you prepare for something like this? How do you, how do you get ready for it? What do you have to change? How do you really be on the side of your client and not just be afraid of what the IRS is going to do to you? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of folks outside of this uh, this world tend to think, well, if, if you um, haven't done anything wrong, you, you don't have anything <laughs> to worry about, right? You have nothing to hide. It's sort of this, you know, this this yeah. fallacy that relates to any sort of uh, enforcement measure on the tax side. Um, and unfortunately, that, that does, I think, have on the flip side an implication for practitioners currently, which is even if you're confident that your, all your clients are, um, are above board doing everything right and, and you're in, in good shape, uh, you have to uh, be bracing for um, a, a higher likelihood that all the details are going to be scrutinized, uh, even if everything is is in is in shape. And so I think I think it just the way I framed it to a lot of folks is it it just makes even more important the best practices that we're already recommending to clients on the tax side in terms of keeping all of your receipts and, and ducks in a row to be able to to basically prove your math when it comes to uh, the IRS. And even that sometimes uh, isn't enough, as as we know, right? If you get um, you know an investigator or an agent who uh, it's particularly stubborn or it's a different interpretation of the law. And then you have to deal with the legal side of it as well, which is its own world. But I mean, that that in of itself is going to be the best protection against any sort of questions, especially, you know, and I, I personally haven't gone through this process, but my understanding from a lot of practitioners is 
Uh, if you can sort of resolve this at the correspondence level, right, where a lot of right. audits begin, sure. uh, where you're having, you know, just questions back and forth, if you can very easily and clearly demonstrate, uh, sort of answer their questions there, that can help prevent getting deeper into it where the workload is a lot higher for yourself and your client. That, that, that's, um, that's assuming that you can actually correspond with them because the, yes. the, they will actually, you know, respond to you. So that's yeah. a, that's a big, it, what if, um, one of the concerns that I've expressed um, publicly is that the IRS has already taken this uh, uh, an approach on some issues where they don't even look at the issue at the audit level. They just automatically disallow it. You know, you can talk yeah. about things, you know, things in their dirty dozen, captive insurance, conservation easements, things like yeah. that. They're in the law. I mean, we 831B is a subsection mm -hmm. of the Internal Revenue Code, right? Um, conservation easements are specifically identified as a legal deduction in the Internal Revenue Code. And the IRS still takes the position, we don't care. Yeah, We're, we're just going to disallow it. If you don't like it, take it to court, which is fine if you've got a $5 million tax bill. But if you have a $50,000 tax bill and it costs you $500,000 to take it to court, Obviously, you're not going to be taking it to court. So one of my concerns is if these auditors get thrown out too soon and they're thrown out with checklists, mm -hmm. um, because we've seen over the last 10 years, I have anyway, that a lot of the auditing has been about documentation. It's not been, is this legal? Um, mm -hmm. They never get past it. Okay. And they don't know how to get past it. And so sometimes they can come in with a checklist. If you don't meet the checklist, they just disallow it. And now you're in a take it to tax court situation because appeals has been a rubber stamp lately. So are you concerned about that at the tax foundation that there might be what I consider bullying? And it's really mm -hmm. bullying, not of the taxpayer, but it's really bullying of the CPAs because we're the ones that they're trying to um, get conformity from. Are, are you concerned about that with having all this new money come in? Yeah, I think it is definitely worthy of concern. I mean, and we've seen this, of course, uh, yeah, a lot of anecdotes out there, even on the existing process and, you know, sort of what existed back, if you look back at some of the stories uh, before the IRS uh, had changed back in the 90s and early 2000s, that was an early, a big issue, right? Where they could right. leverage the fact that there are high transaction costs to go into court uh, and of course, for them, I mean, as, as you say, uh, the the incentives within the agency, absent any sort of reform, are going in the wrong direction there because they are looking at ROI. They are e either explicitly or implicitly uh, weighing uh, what is the probability that this any given taxpayer is going to challenge us on this uh, when they think about the return to their own right. activity. And and that's that's a big uh, challenge. And, and that I think also gives you know sort of uh, shows how how this is sort of fallacious thinking about this $400,000 amount because folks above that, the ROI, yes, there might be a, they might be a big source of the, of the tax cap, but because they have the resources to fight it, uh, the ROI there actually is much less than you think, right? right. It's the folks in that middle ground who have sure. the income and the complexity where you can make a case that, well, there's an issue here, but don't have where it's rational for them to say, hey, I'm not going to, I don't have the resources to go to tax court and fight this for the next right. year or two. I'm just going to pay it. Um, and, and it's that attitude that I think we have to be really worried about uh, from the IRS standpoint. I think that wraps back up to what we said at the beginning, which is if you have, if they had more of a customer service mindset, if there's more reform there and accountability on that side of things, you're never going to eliminate that problem, right? There's still going to be that, 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 oh, that sure. lack of incentive, but you can help mitigate it at least somewhat if that was the priority. Yeah. So, so it seems to me like um, 
what you're going to end up with is two types of accountants. You're going to end up the accountants who basically work for the IRS, um, which is uh, I've heard actually Commissioner Reddick suggest that we really should be working for them, um, that we're the we're the we're the front line of the compliance uh, part of it. I heard it from his mouth. And so he's been very public about that. Um, or you've got and, and there's many CPAs who are just afraid of. I mean, they're afraid of things like a home office deduction, which is really clear in the law. Right. I mean, these are legitimate deductions. So where do you draw the line between being um, an advocate for your client and uh, protecting yourself from the IRS? Yeah, I think that line as a as a CPA or practitioner, it gets harder the, the higher this risk of, of bullying sort of uh, sort of increases. Right. If, if that is the. Um, you know, because of the, the part of this is if you actually draw the logic out of what Commissioner Reddick is saying, um, in terms of you know, and, and and there's some kernel truth there in that yes, CPAs obviously have uh, an ethical obligation to help you know um, uh, be consistent with the law. But uh, if that's the case, uh, then CPAs and and the tax folks who are conducting audits or just engaging in correspondence um, should be it should be more collaborative than adversarial right. in that case, right? And so it's like you can't you can't have both ways where all of a sudden. Their adversaries in one context, but you expect them to not represent their clients in another. Uh, so there has to be consistency and approach there and how we think about it. Um, uh, and it, I think that balance of, you know, a, a CPA still representing their client within within a, a good faith understanding of the law is the right. There's a reason why that's typically been the way we've done it. Uh, and it's really incumbent on the IRS to ensure that what they're doing um, is, is yeah. consistent with that approach. And if they are looking for enforcement, doing it in a productive way rather than in a bullying way, um, for, for folks who are, you know, because again, I, I think part of this comes from a, a mindset that anyone who is being audited either is, you know, is doing something wrong or hiding something. And the category of someone who legitimately as in good faith is trying to comply with the law, but because there's complexity and nuance, there's uncertainty, you know, that, that's, that's missed on a lot of folks who don't operate in this space every day. Right. Or, or it may just be that, you know, the IRS doesn't like something. I mean, for example, I can... Yes. I can see an example. We have big bonus depreciation deductions in the real estate industry right now. We have since 2018, right? And so I could I could see a checklist. I'm going, you know, I'm just imagining this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm going too far, but I'm imagining, okay, well, boy, you've got all this, you've got this big loss from your real estate. We're just going to disallow it. And even though it, instead of looking at what the actual facts are of the case, and, and that is my big concern. So I think what we're going to end up with is you're going to have those CPAs with those clientele that say, I don't want anything to do with an IRS audit. Whatever you do, I will, I will, I will happily pay more tax to not, uh, you know, be under scrutiny of the IRS, which is, by the way, completely wrong. Um, right. in our tax law, right? And then you'll have the other set of the, 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 the CPAs that say, you know what? I'm going to learn the law. I'm going to make sure I understand the law. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to have best practices with my work papers. And I'm, I'm going to handle IRS audits. But in that case, you'd better be prepared and you'd better have the staffing and you'd better, and your clients better know that prices, uh, you want to talk about inflation, uh, prices are going up in the CPA profession when you add mm -hmm. 87,000 people to the IRS. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And then this also shows the intersection of and the importance of, of policy on the policy side um, when we, we think about tax policy because, uh, well, first, of course, yeah, we, we definitely would uh, don't want to encourage uh, these agents who are taking it upon themselves to effectively nullify policy or, or reduce policy because they personally don't like them. 
at the same time, you know, and in, in somewhat in their defense, if if a policy is um, is is hard to comply with, or the way that it works, it makes generates a lot of uncertainty about whether or not it's being complied in practice on both the CPA side and on the IRS side. That's a symptom that policymakers need to do their job too and ensure Absolutely. that policy is clear. Uh, on the right side, of course, make sure that's clear. And then, you know, simplify things where possible. That's been a big, you know, a push from us, which is simplicity and tax reform there can help with enforcement for everyone, you know, for the IRS and for taxpayers and their, uh, the CPAs. Agreed. Um, well, thank you, Garrett. Thanks for joining us. And any final words for the CPAs out there who um, I, I think, you know, some CPAs are going, I never get an audit anyway, I don't care. And others are, are like me that we have enough history to know that uh, we'd, we'd better start um, thinking about this and we'd better start now. Yeah, I, I think t talking to folks who have that that prior experience could be for, for a CPA who hasn't dealt with this. Um, it'd be the right time to do it, right? To because uh, nothing really beats. And I think that's something that we've learned here, right? Like beats that actual learning of that in-person experience of what that's like. I think a lot of the issues we're talking about today is, is precisely because we don't have that in a lot of contexts. And so that could be another way of of trying to get that um, get some tips uh, for folks who actually have dealt with it, um, because it is it is easy uh, if you haven't dealt with it uh, to think it won't happen to you. And that's what taxpayers think too until right. they're knee deep into it and they have to get up to speed at that point. Well, and I think that's what's going on is that uh, we've had so many years where the IRS has been, frankly, woefully underfunded. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody questions that. And to the extent where people just haven't been audited. And so they go, well, yeah, I want you to audit the rich people, you know, yes. that they think they're not going to get audited when that's not really how it works. And if you look at the IRS's own numbers, um, that, you know, when you look at where's most of the money for, to, to be collected in IRS audits, it tends to be in that 100 to $300,000 range. Um, uh, that's where the money is. So, you know, the tendency is, is that, okay, we have, we, we've been told as the IRS, we have to collect this much money that's expected of us. Therefore, we're going to go where the money is. That's right. So thank you, Garrett. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. Please uh, watch this over and over again. Listen to it over and over again. Uh, go to the taxfoundation.org. Um, tremendous resources at the Tax Foundation, Garrett. You guys do an amazing work. And uh, I know I'm subscribed. I, I, I read your stuff all the time. And what happens is, is that when we're trying to prepare for something like this, we really have to learn the law better. We have to, like you say, better practices. We have to, we're going to, a lot of CPAs don't even keep work papers. We'd better start keeping work papers, helping our, um, our clients uh, be more compliant with the law. And when we do that, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to help them uh, help our clients probably going to have to raise our fees. Let's be, let's be fair. We're going to have to raise our fees and, uh, but we'll end up with better clients and a better practice and a better life. You've been listening to the WealthAbility for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to WealthAbility.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.